You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, chairperson of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses, a chapter of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners out there. Today is March 13th, 2022, and this is episode 164 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we're going to listen to part one of a two-part interview with Terry and Jerry Cole. Terry was the resident park ranger at Fort Point Lighthouse in Maine for more than 30 years. And then we'll have a special Be a Lighthouse segment about an art exhibition that is benefiting the people of Ukraine. First, what's happened on the state lighthouse history, Michelle? Well, Jeremy, on March 13, 1819, a lighthouse was authorized at Craney Island, Virginia, at the mouth of the Elizabeth River in Chesapeake Bay. It was decided to place a lightship near the island instead, and the lightship placed there in 1820 was the first permanent lightship station in the country. A screw pile lighthouse replaced the lightship in 1859, and it was rebuilt in 1884. The screw pile lighthouse was removed in 1936. On his Lighthouse Friends website, Craig Anderson quotes keeper Charles Sterling in 1918 during World War I. Sterling said there had been no coal deliveries for months, so he was collecting driftwood to heat the lighthouse. He said he was doing his bit to help with the war effort. So, Michelle, please help me tell our listeners about Fort Point Lighthouse and today's guests. Sure, Jeremy. Fort Point Lighthouse is in Stockton Springs, Maine, near the mouth of the Penobscot River. The light station is part of Fort Point State Park and is adjacent to the remains of Fort Pownall, which was built in 1759 to guard against the French. Fort Point Light was established in 1836, and the 31-foot square brick lighthouse that stands today was built in 1857. Because of its beautiful and accessible location, Fort Point Light was always a sought-after station for keepers. In 1973, 22-year-old Coast Guardsman Terry Cole became the lightkeeper at Fort Point. When they moved into the lighthouse, he and his wife Jerry were raising two young daughters. While he was stationed at Fort Point with the Coast Guard, Terry became involved with Fort Point State Park, which came into being in 1974. He served as park manager for a while before he and his family moved on to a Coast Guard station at Race Point on Cape Cod in 1976. In 1988, Fort Point Light was automated and the Coast Guard reassigned its keepers. After automation, the Coast Guard leased the light station to the state of Maine and the keeper's house became housing for a park ranger and his family. The first person to fill the live-in position was Terry Cole, beginning in 1989. As park manager, Terry kept an eye on the lighthouse and fort and gave him impromptu tours for more than 12,000 people who climbed the tower. Public tours and maintenance of the buildings kept Terry busy for more than three decades. Terry's wife, Jerry, played a large role helping to organize events and answering visitors' questions, often from a kitchen window of the keeper's house. Terry enjoys historic research and has documented much of the light station's history, and he has worked as the archivist in charge of the special collections at the Belfast, Maine Public Library. He also rejoined the Coast Guard as a reservist in 1998. 
Terry retired this past summer after 44 years working for Maine Parks and Lands and more than 30 years of living at the Fort Point Lighthouse. I spoke with Terry and Jerry Cole in January. I've split the interview into two parts. We'll hear part one in this episode and part two in the episode that will be released next week on March 20th. So let's listen to part one now. I'm speaking today with Terry Cole, who recently retired as the longtime resident park manager at Fort Point State Park and Lighthouse in Stockton Springs, Maine, and also with Terry's wife, Jerry. Thank you so much for joining me today, Terry and Jerry. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. So I've known you for probably, I think, I was trying to figure it out, I think close to 30 years. And yeah. yeah. yeah since uh, I would say the early 90s is probably when I first visited you while, while you were living there. And I visited Fort Point Lighthouse many times over the years, as you remember, <laughs> often with tour groups. Uh, I want to yeah. thank both of you very much for your hospitality over the years during those visits. It was always a, a pleasure, always a lot of fun visiting there. I do want to talk about your personal experiences about uh, life at Fort Point State Park and Lighthouse, but I want to start with some of the history, Terry, and I know you've uh, researched a lot of the history of the the lighthouse and the, the fort there and uh, the whole area. Uh, the Penobscot River area, of course, is, is really beautiful. There's a lot of interesting history. One of the events that's pretty pretty famous there, it's uh, not the most positive episode. I'd say it, maybe it's more like an infamous uh, episode in history rather than famous, but uh, certainly interesting. The worst naval defeat in American history happened there. Do you, can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, yeah, it's considered the worst naval disaster until Pearl Harbor. Down in Castine, an area that had many different countries had possession of it. But during the revolution, uh, a force of uh, British came up and, and took over the town and rebuilt the, the fort as a way to keep the Americans uh, from down below at bay, more or less. But the uh, people down in Massachusetts didn't really like that very much. So they sent a fairly large expedition up to remove the British and uh, a number of ships and about a thousand soldiers. Uh, Paul Revere was in the in charge of the artillery for the uh, Americans. And it, what happened was they stalled. And in fact, one of the leaders was Saltonstall from Massachusetts. They couldn't decide what to do. Yeah, they would make an attack and then retreat, and it, it just went on and on, and it was really a long time. It's probably a month and a half, two months, and then they waited too long. The British ships from a from away, I think from Halifax, and the Americans hightailed it. They didn't have any place to go but upriver. Yeah, and uh, it was a mess. They had uh, they scuttled their, their ships. A number of ships carcasses are on the uh, shores of the Penobscot. Paul Revere walked back to Massachusetts. He went all the way to Augusta and get back there. And, and Saltonstall was, he was tried and found guilty of uh, poor leadership. Yeah. He was given a wooden sword as a token of his uh, court martial. Wasn't Paul Revere court martialed also, I believe? I, I think so. I think he, he managed to get out get of off. It. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I believe yeah. so. Well, it's a very interesting story. So you mentioned Fort Pownall. That's the reason why it's called Fort Point, uh, the state park and where the lighthouse is, Fort Pownall. When, when was Fort Pownall established? 1759. Uh, the uh, French and Indian War was going on, and they wanted to block the, the mouth of the river. Uh, and they chose this spot, beautiful spot to have a fort yeah. and a lighthouse. And never really saw any action, but it was a center for uh, trade. 
it was finally destroyed uh, by the, the uh, Americans early on in the revolution. Up until then, it, it was a, a center of the whole area. Waldo County really started right there. So uh, why was a lighthouse established at Fort Point in 1836? Location, location, location. It was the perfect spot. You know, it's on a headland uh, and the river starts right there. A number of other lighthouses had been established coming from Seawood as routes to, to Bangor. Because Bangor was up and coming. It was the lumber capital of the, of the world, probably. By 1830, uh, over a thousand vessels were recorded going up and up the river. And, and so they needed a lighthouse. And then wasn't Stockton Springs a center for shipping also? I think potatoes were an export yep. from there. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yes, it was another up and coming. It's going to be a city and they had the largest wooden docks in, in the world at the time, 19, well, around the 1900s, 20th yeah. century. So that was quite a bit after the lighthouse was established. Yes. But uh, yeah. it was mainly the uh, the fact that the Penobscot River was so busy with shipping related to the, the lumber business in Bangor, right? Exactly. The light was established, yeah. And uh, one of the interesting, interesting things about Fort Point Light Station is that it still has one of the few 19th century pyramidal, I used to say pyramidal, but I believe the correct pronunciation is pyramidal, uh, fog bell towers still standing. Well, of course, you know, it, it's it's nice to have a light to go by, but unfortunately, there's a lot of fog there. So a sound device is, is important. In 1890, it was built and a large uh, Stevens apparatus was the, there to ring the bell. Uh, the Stevens mechanism there in the fog bell tower that had to be hand wound by the keeper every so many hours. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, every four hours it ran out. Like yeah. a grandfather clock, you said. Yeah. 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 yeah um, very similar to, to that kind of idea. Yeah. I know there's, there's very few of those remaining. They rebuilt one at Goat Island light in uh, Kenny Bunkport, Maine. Yeah. The construction of this is amazing. It's, there's no real rot. There's, there's a little bit just starting out, but, uh, it's up off the ground, and, and they they just knew what they were doing. No, it's a beautiful little building. I love it. I, I would like to talk about some of the, the human history there. It seems like it was probably kind of a, a plum uh, assignment for a lighthouse keeper, you know, compared to some of the, obviously, to some of the offshore lights uh, in the region. Pretty nice place to live uh, for, for the most part. So Fort Point had only four resident keepers from uh, the 1880s to the 1950s, by my count, which is uh, pretty good. So obviously they tended to have long uh, stints there. Do you think it was a, well, you lived there for a long time, so you know as well as anybody uh, whether it's a, a good place to live or not. Do you think that's the main reason why there are so few keepers there over the years? Well, most of those keepers uh, were at the end of their career. Most of them had been a, a number of lighthouses, offshore lights. And so this was a, I, I would think it was nice, a nice change to, to have the access. They had the steamers came regularly and uh, they could go uptown. So the, the access uh, and, the, you know, not having to uh, row ashore and hope you don't get tipped over and stuff. So. And I know you've researched uh, some of the specific uh, keepers and families who live there. One of the longtime keepers was Arthur Mitchell. He was there uh, 1929 to 52. Was he the longest serving keeper at Fort Point? Yes. Yeah. You interviewed his grandson. Is that right? Yes. One story his grandson told me was that Captain Mitchell didn't want to retire. He had to retire. But uh, it, it, at some point, his hometown uh, where his, his records were 
the town office burned. Whatever they had, they had to redo it and stuff. And it turned out that he actually, it was the date of his birthday was, it was went back a year. So he actually cheated. He, you know, he said he cheated the government out of the year. He got to re- stay longer by a year mm-hmm. because of that. So, <laughs> yeah, Arthur uh, Curtis, his grandson, spent all the summers there as a, as a child. His grandfather sometimes called him that kid. <laughs> I'm not sure if he was, you know, mentioned he called him a pest sometimes. His grandfather did. But uh, I guess one time uh, Arthur had kept his grandfather's pocket watch. He thought he dropped it in the, those outhouse there. <laughs> he, so so I, we're not sure if it's there now. But uh-huh. It was incredible. When we, when we interviewed him, we walked around. Uh, and we went into the bell tower, and he really, really just, it just memory side, really come back to the smell of it. Mm. You know, he really, memory. Yeah. really brought out that, and he had all kinds of stories and stuff. So he would wind that, uh, that mechanism himself as a, as a kid. Right? Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't, e- apparently, he said it wasn't easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, Terry, I understand you have a poem that was written by Keeper Arthur Mitchell. Is that right? I do. Want to read that? Yes. It's by uh, Mrs. Zella W. Preston, and she was from Cherryfield, and that's where he, Arthur and his wife uh, were from. Okay. And, so this is a, I'm sorry. So this is a poem about Keeper Mitchell, not, yes. not, not written by him, but by this, this woman about him. Yeah. No. It's called Sending Its Beams Far Down the Bay, Stands Fort Point Light, Firm on the Shore, Where Broad Penobscot Wends Its Way to swell Atlantic's watery shore. The captain climbs the winding stair when darkening twilight ends the day and lights the beacon waiting there to guide the ships upon the way. His good wife in the room below puts on the kettle for the tea. The house dog wanders to and fro. The fog comes drifting in from sea. If dark or moonlit be the night, though rain and fog, though snow and hail, the captain keeps the beacon bright. It guides the sailors without fail, though loud and louder howls the storm. Beside their hearth, the fires burn bright lighthouse. They sit together, snug and warm, though cold and colder grows the night. God bless the captain and his wife, the keepers of the Fort Point Light. May long and happy be their life, and may peace attend their day and night. Very nice. Something occurred to me, you mentioned the dog in the, in the poem. There were a number of well-known dogs at lighthouses on the main coast. Some of them I like to call fog dogs that learned to pull the rope and sound the fog bell. Was there any, ever anything like that at Fort Point that you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's amazing how many lighthouses had those had dogs, and, and they were. I think most of them could ring the bell with a, with a rope on it. And Cody was the lighthouse dog at Fort Point, and uh, when a ship went by, Cody would run out to the bell tower and grab the rope in his mouth and ring it and the the uh, ship would answer him back and it was was he, he had a quite a reputation oh this was, was in our... the 1950s it was a, a okay ernest Matthew was the keeper okay yeah i thought maybe there was one of those dogs there so <laughs> glad glad to hear it every uh main lighthouse with a fog bell should should have a fog dog so i understand you also found some interesting things about keeper john thurston is there 1902 to 1919? Is that right? Yes. I had uh, gotten all the logbook copies from the archives and spent quite a bit of time going through them. And 
I came to this one page that was uh, very different. It was, uh, as you looked at it, you could tell that a child had been writing, writing the alphabet, writing her name. Uh, she drew a nice picture of a of 1890s woman in, a, in an 1890s dress. She said, Beatrice writing. Mm. And so for a long time, it was, we were trying to figure out who is Beatrice. Was she a relative, one of the keepers? And I, I had the bell tower open and it had some displays in there. And especially on the weekends, I'd, I'd have it open to the public. And uh, one uh, Sunday, I remember going out and just talking with people and got to talking with a woman and uh, mentioning that there was, was this Beatrice and I couldn't figure out uh, who she was and, and the woman said oh you mean Beatrice Sperling mm-hmm. she lives in Castine <laughs> and so we found out about Beatrice she was uh, Thurston's granddaughter he had two granddaughters and a grandson and, and one daughter uh, she was married to uh, Sperling and he was a keeper so his daughter was a lighthouse keeper's wife too and they were out at Franklin Island uh, and then came to, to Dice Head we found out they would go back and forth by boat to, right. to each other. But Beatrice, uh, we, we had be called there and, and uh, went to visit her. And she had a lot of memories about Fort Point. She remembered skating in the, in the, there's a fort foundation. This where the, the, the main fort was and, and it floods and it freezes over. And she remembers skating there as a child. There's a picture of, uh, of the lighthouse back and around 1910. And, and at one point I, I was, had a magnifying glass and I was looking around at the pictures and I all of a sudden noticed that in the picture, the garage door was open and there were uh, two children and, a, and a, a woman in white dresses. And we, they had to have been Beatrice and her, and her sister and mother. She played piano at the in silent movies when she was a teenager. Oh, neat. Yeah. Wow. Huh. Cool. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, the Dice Head Light Station and Castine by boat. They're fairly close to each other, right? So I imagine the the families at those two places socialize quite a bit with each other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. One picture of the uh, the pier shows a, a boat, and it has to be Thurston's boat. And uh, yeah, it's it uh, it's close, but sometimes can be pretty rough. Before we move on to other subjects, anything else about keepers and families at Fort Point that kind of stands out for you? Yeah, well, one little story is the first keeper was, his name was William Cluley. His father mm-hmm. had been a soldier at the fort, and uh, William had uh, taken up with the, as a mariner, and he had was a captain of a ship and had, had his own ship. And there was land ownership right there at the lighthouse before it became a lighthouse. He owned part of that property, and uh, it, when the government took it over, his house had to go. So they made him the first keeper it, at that time it wasn't the same it was a, a granite house residence and a granite tower round conical shaped tower and uh, there were a number of keepers complained about how much it leaked how badly it heated and so it was rebuilt yeah. only 20 30 years later so anyway william cluley wc that's his initials delbert webster was there 1872 to 1902 he was one, one time out uh, plowing the garden and he came across this spoon and he dusted it off and there was initials WC. It had to have been William Cluley. So it stayed in the family. The, the Webster's kept being passed on and uh, not 
too long ago. I think it was 2013, I think a relative got in touch with me and wanted to donate it to the park. So the uh, the spoon with its initials WC are back at the park now. Hmm. Well, that's neat. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So let's go forward in time as far as the history goes, but back in time for, for you. Let's talk about the time you spent as a Coast Guard lightkeeper at Fort Point. You were assigned there when you were in the Coast Guard in 1973, right? You were, I think, 22 years old at the time. Yes. Do I have that yep. right? Okay. Yep. How long had you been in the Coast Guard at that point? Uh, that, and how did you get assigned to Fort Point? Was it something <laughs> you wanted or how did that happen? Well, I was, I was in, I think it was, I came in 69. I was down in Woods Hole on a buoy tender and and neutral up to Rockland Station. And it, at that time, there were a lot more manned lighthouses around and in Penobscot Bay. And uh, so they were occasionally asking for somebody to volunteer to, to be a relief keeper. Jerry and I both said, hey, you know, it's something different. Let's try it, you know. We did Brown's Head. We went up to Brown's Head. Oh. It was the Baxter's where he was the... Yeah, was I know there. I know John Baxter. I think she had a baby there. I'm not, yes, I they did. I yes. did an article yeah. about that, actually. There's uh, John Baxter there. and his wife had their son, I think Stephen, was born there. Yeah. yeah I think it was the um, last baby, last Coast Guard baby born there at that station. <laughs> on Vinyl Haven, for people yeah. listening, on Vinyl Haven Island. Yeah. yeah, they were awful nice people. They left and uh, we were there for the weekend and... When they came back, the ferry wasn't running anymore because it was too rough out. So we stayed one more night with them to, and get the ferry the next day. And then uh, we, we were uh, we spent a week out at Curtis Island relief keeping. Oh. So we've, we've got a reputation, and I guess it was pretty good. <laughs> and uh, so a couple other lighthouses came up for, were open for somebody. And Burnt Coat was the first one, and I put in for it. And Somebody else got it instead of me. And but then Fort Point came up. And funny that the first time I ever saw Fort Point was at night. We were on our boat, sort of doing patrols and stuff. And I had been sleeping down below. And I came up at, and asked the guy that run, run the boat. There was a bright light over towards the east. And I said, what is, what is that light? And he said, oh, that, that's Fort Point. And that's the first I was, I was introduced to, to Fort Point. So I... Put in for it. The 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 uh, aids navigation officer knew us, and uh, we got the job. And it came in January of '73. Mm-hmm. Stayed there three years. Remind me, where are you from originally? We're from uh, Massachusetts. Uh, middle. I'm from Middleborough, and, and Jerry's from Bridgewater. They're both okay. beside each other. Yeah, I know where they are. I know if our yeah. listeners necessarily know, but yeah, not that far from from the Boston area. I was actually born in Hope, Maine. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, and didn't live there long, but I, I grew up in Middleborough and then in Bridgewater. And then mm-hmm. when we got married and had the chance to move um, to do, a, Terry called it a mutual, which is if you're looking for a place to go, you look at a, a bulletin board and see who else is looking for some place to switch out of. So mm-hmm. uh, we he found Rockland Station and it sounded good to us. And I, I'd always wanted to come back to Maine, mm-hmm. just the right timing. Yeah. But yeah, and then and the station was unique. It had a a full fledged museum there that Captain uh, Captain Black 
established and right being there was quite a an experience a learning experience about just running something in the history of the area and stuff sure yeah the late ken black who that collection of course uh used to be at the shore village museum in rockland there and became the basis of the main lighthouse museum in rockland now known as mr lighthouse in the area (laughs) yeah of course yeah. So when you were at Four Point, you were the you were the only keeper, right? There weren't multiple uh, keepers, Coast Guard keepers there, right? Right. It was a single state, single officer in charge. The two of you were raising two young daughters when you were there in the seventies, right? And the in yes. the at at Four Point in the the seventies when Terry was in the Coast Guard. I understand there was something that happened with your daughter Melissa. Soon after you arrived, I've heard this story. It had you uh, both a little worried, I think, briefly. Is that right? <laughs> I mean, overall, you know, our time there coming to a lighthouse together, I mean, it was, it was great because it was just, you know, we were just together all the time and that we loved that. And our girls were little. Melissa was has always been an independent girl. And we were out playing in the yard. Uh, with Melissa and her her baby sister Amanda and our dog and quite often we would play outside and then we would walk down to the beach and collect sea glass and, and then come back and we, we were out there that day and we turned around and Melissa was nowhere in sight and and of course you know panic sets in you know she's a little tiny girl and we immediately knew where she was headed um, so as we called her and ran around, uh, ran down to the path, she, she must have heard us and was trudging back up. And she, she said she'd gone down to the beach. She was going to the beach to get glass. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it was, it was a scary moment. But Yeah. Well, I know that trail well. I've walked down to that beach yeah. a number of times when I've yeah. been there. It's, a, it's a real, real pretty little walk there. So it must have been interesting raising small girls there at that time you were there uh let me just get that straight you were there for how long during that first stretch when you were in the coast guard uh three years uh, three years okay and your girls were quite small at that time right yeah melissa was three Three. and amanda was just a baby just a year Uh uh-huh yeah Yeah, big changes in you know in a child's life in three years you know melissa went from being you know, a toddler to going to school uh-huh. and she started school in Stockton. So she must remember a good fair amount about those, those days. She does. Yeah. She does. Unique uh, early childhood there. Did you have any unusual visitors during that, that stretch uh, when you're in the Coast Guard, any, anything out of the ordinary? There were always unusual visitors. It was, you know, more the case that, you know, there were a lot of people wanting information and it was really at the beginnings of the state park so Uh that the amount of visitors weren't it it wasn't the same amount that there is now so it was a more friendly and cordial interaction a relaxed interaction that we would have with people because we weren't pressured to be having you know the hordes of people that would come later on but yeah, so some of the unusual visitors we had. Well, I, I'll never forget. It was uh, a very, uh, very foggy night. Soup, fog soup. And uh, we had company over, I think. Mm-hmm. I think we met a number of people in, in, in the town and 
get to know a lot of different things. Anyway, we were, you know, they probably had, we had supper and uh, all of a sudden there was a knock at the door and we opened the door not knowing who it was. And uh, this woman was there and, and uh, she was talking a little bit with us. We could tell that she'd been probably having some beverages uh-huh. and but she really wanted to know what uh, note the uh, frog horn was in. And uh, that was, I, you know, I really, I said, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That was a good one. Uh, yeah. Years later, we saw her several, several times and talked about it and stuff. Did you ever figure out what note the no. foghorn was? No. It's <laughs> something we probably should have figured least, yeah. out. And Tara, you told me a story once about a Coast Guard inspection team, an interesting thing that happened during a, a visit. So either of you could tell that story maybe. Okay. Well, when, when we would have inspections, you know, just the idea of having someone come into your house to inspect basically everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there was some stress involved in that. And we were pretty meticulous about how things were kept and what we did. When people would come to your home, I mean, always you would welcome them. And in my point of view, you know, you welcome people with food. And I always made sure that when he was going to have an inspection, that I had made pie and had a fresh pot of coffee on, you know, anything we could do to make our guests welcome in the house. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it became a little bit of a thing that anytime there was an inspection, people knew that they were going to be treated well at our house. And the pie became a little bit of a joke, something that people would look forward to. And then there was this one inspection. It was a full-fledged inspection. It was offices from Boston, the, the district office. So this was a big one. And uh, yeah. I think we had a full captain was in charge of it and several warrant offices and uh, quite a, six, yeah. six or seven mm-hmm. people. And first thing they said, uh, I think the captain mm-hmm. said, I hear you uh, have pie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh but I think you, you made sure you I, did. I, I made sure. I made several pies because we knew that we were going to be getting a crowd. Yeah. And I made sure to have the pie coming out of the oven just as they got there. What kind of pie did you make? Apple, of course. Yeah. So yeah. what happened? Uh, okay. Yeah. So uh, the, the Coast Guard was very uh, concerned about fires. And so we had all, we had fire extinguishers in every room, big ones, the real big ones. And another thing we had besides those was we had a fire hose upstairs. It was coiled. It was rolled up on a holder and uh, it was, uh, you know, it had a faucet and you could turn it on. And I had made a, a little box to kind of make it look a little nicer and stuff. And it was kind of a tight fit. Well, I, we, we went up and I sh- took the box off and showed them that and put it back on. And uh, a little while later, I was in the office with one of one of the uh, yeomen. And all of a sudden, I, I called to him to, and, to come down quickly. <laughs> and I came flying in through the living room and into the dining room. And here's, uh, I think it was the captain mm-hmm. was standing on our dining room table with a, a bowl, a big bowl and water was coming down through the uh, the chandelier light and the warrant office was over by the light switch and he said captain you want me to turn the light on <laughs> and, uh-huh. 
it just you know to see that I not that many people enlisted would would see that type of thing, but it, it, it's forever going to be a memory that it will crack me up. So but, what uh, happened? The water from that hose, hose must have turned on a tiny bit and then was coming right through uh, the light yeah. fixture. You, you can still see the water stains today. Yeah. <laughs> you painted over it, but. Jerry, you mentioned before that while you were there uh, during that stretch, it was kind of the beginnings of the state park there. And Terry, uh, if I understand right, you actually started working for Maine Parks and Land while you were still stationed there in the Coast Guard. Do I have that yes. right? Yeah. Before it was right next door. I mean, it was 100 feet from the lighthouse, the remains of it. And uh, they, it was a custom that every keeper there would go and take care of it, mow it and keep it up. And it was just a part-time job. People drove up and there's a parking lot right there. And that was my first year there. And then they built the park and it became a, a full-fledged manager's position. And so I became a manager for a couple of years until I was transferred. When I got out, it wasn't too long I get out of the, get out of the, I was at yep. Race Point and we decided to come back to Maine. Right. And uh, just by chance, the my park's boss stopped by one time. We were at a, at a flea market and he came over and said, do you want your old job back? I was unemployed and I said, sure, why not? It was just a seasonal job, but that's, we got back into the, the park service and the rest is history. Right. So for that stretch until 1989, right, you were living, not living in the park or at the lighthouse. You were commuting from, from your home. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. But that, I actually, first time I visited Four Point Lighthouse was 1989. Larry Baum was a Coast Guard lightkeeper, he, and he ended up being, he was the last one. It was actually the automation process was underway when I visited there. I interviewed him with my VHS camcorder at that time, and the foghorn started going off, and I have this on videotape. He uh, he stopped talking in the middle of what he was saying, and he said uh, something like, uh, automation, and he got up and walks off camera to turn the horn off. <laughs> but I don't know if I'll leave that in or not, but anyway. <laughs> Then you became the resident park manager at Four Point. You and you moved back into the keeper's house in 1989, right? How did it feel to to live there again? To move back in? It was it was just surreal. I had actually dreamt about it a lot. We were feeling that it was going to happen, the the, the paperwork and the the government part of it. And uh, we actually went down and signed the contract the day I was we, I got out of I was working at school. And we went right down, signed the contract, and we went to our home, and we packed up all that we could. I can't remember we had a mattress. Yeah, we I... had a couple of mattresses and <laughs> got our girls and the mattresses, and yeah, we, we just we spent a rough night. Yeah, in the, it was in the lighthouse. It was the... rustic, but it yes. was we were so glad. It was just it was just incredible. And once again, that smell. I always think of that when coming into the 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 house. It just it, it hit me right that mm -hmm. we were kind of home for years. I, I would always, if I was outside and and uh, maybe it was foggy, and I'd kind of look up at the at the light and think, I can't believe I'm still I'm here. You know, it just mm -hmm. it, it took a long time for that to go away. It just it was unbelievable.
You can go online to maine.gov for more information on Fort Point State Park. The park is open to the public from mid-May to mid-October from 9 a.m. to sunset every day. In addition to the lighthouse and the remains of Fort Pownall, there are picnic tables, walking trails, and a pier on the Penobscot River. I really enjoyed having the chance to talk with Terry and Jerry Cole about the years at Fort Point. As I said earlier, we're going to hear part two of the interview in the next episode of this podcast, which will be released on Sunday, March 20th. Next, we're going to have a special segment that falls under the Be a Lighthouse heading. An organization called Lighthouse Immersive is sponsoring a fundraising initiative in support of the National Bank of Ukraine Fund and Red Cross Fund to help aid the people of Ukraine. The show, Immersive Shevchenko, Soul of Ukraine, was created by Ukrainian studio Rock and Light and First Theatrical Charitable Foundation, a creative team that continues to work all across Ukraine despite the dangers of the Russian invasion. Taras Shevchenko, who lived from 1814 to 1861, was a Ukrainian poet, writer, artist, public and political figure, and folklorist. His literary heritage is regarded to be the foundation of modern Ukrainian literature, and he's also known for many masterpieces as a painter and illustrator. In 1847, Shevchenko was politically convicted for explicitly promoting the independence of Ukraine, writing poems in the Ukrainian language, and ridiculing members of the Russian imperial house. In this new show, the audience can see pieces by Shevchenko projected across the gallery walls, and the show is set to a soundtrack to further immerse you in his world. The exhibit first opened in Odessa to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Ukrainian independence last year. Immersive Shevchenko will be shown in six cities on March 15th. That's this Tuesday, March 15th. Boston, Chicago, Denver, Los Angeles, Toronto, and San Francisco. There will also be a virtual showing on March 15th. Details are available at lighthouseimmersive.com. One of the show's producers, Valerie Kostyuk, was born and raised in Ukraine and lives in Toronto, Canada. I had the chance to speak with them last week. Let's listen to that now. I'm speaking with Valery Kostyuk, uh, in, it was actually in Toronto, but is originally from Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining me today, Valery. Thank you for the invitation. You are one of the producers of this new art show or exhibit, the um, Shevchenko Soul of Ukraine. Again, you're originally from Ukraine. You're from Odessa. Is that right? Yep, Odessa, Ukraine. A uh, wonderful city on the Black Sea with the, a nice lighthouse, as we just discussed yeah, yeah. Um, I've been, you know, like a lot of people uh, in our country, I, I knew a, a bit about Ukraine, but uh, I'm learning a lot more about the geography in recent weeks for, unfortunately, not for the best reasons, but uh, you do have some beautiful lighthouses. Do you still have family and friends in Ukraine? Yeah, I have I have majority of my family is currently in Ukraine in various mm-hmm. cities, uh, Odessa, Vinnytsia, Khmelnytsky, uh, Kiev, so it ranges in the center of, of Ukraine. Everyone right now is either uh, is at home or is in the process of evacuating or, you know, enrolled in territorial defense units or making masking, uh, tank masking nets and or are serving in the Ukrainian armed forces in order to protect the country from uh, the Russian aggression. So it's uh, everyone's in different places. Everyone's in different sort of state of mind. And of course, what is happening is not an ideal scenario that we've been all been expecting, but unfortunately it is what it is right now. 
Yes, it's a very changed world from what it was just a couple of weeks ago for, for so many. Uh, I imagine you're in constant contact with a, a lot of people over there. So you live in Toronto and you're a theater producer. Is that how you would define yourself? Um, for the most part, after COVID, uh, we've become, uh, I've become producers of, producer of experiences as well. So we've been working on Immersive Van Gogh. We've been working on uh, Magic Immersive, which is an immersive magic show. And uh, on the side, uh, as an independent project, I've produced uh, Immersive Shevchenko's Soul of Ukraine um, in Odessa as part of the 30th anniversary of Independence Celebration, which yeah. meets in August. The name Lighthouse Immersive that these these uh, shows you're talking about, they fall under that that banner. What did Were you the one who chose that name, Lighthouse Immersive? No, it was it was our producers. It was uh, producer Svetlana Dvoretskaya, who's also a business partner of Corey Ross, and they've both been Bill been uh, working together in order to come up with a creative name for our company. And you know, our uh, exhibits mostly uh, focus on uh, projectors, so it's projector mm-hmm. art. It's 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 multimedia uh, and um, a lot of work with light. Mm-hmm. And, um, Coming out of knowing that, as well as having a very uh, talented team that is helping us um, make all these successful projects, um, Lighthouse was sort of a logical name for a company like this, mm-hmm. uh, as it shines the way, it shows people where to go, and so are we. Um, so are we creating these new innovative projects? Are leading the way in the art sector. Uh, almost like a lighthouse and, you know, attracting people or different ships to us in order to experience something new, experience new emotions, see something that has never been seen before. So the title Lighthouse Immersive um, was very fitting. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you for for explaining that. makes uh, complete sense. So uh, tell me about Taras Shevchenko, the subject of the uh, immersive uh, exhibit we're talking about. Why is he regarded as so important in Ukrainian culture? I call him a spiritual leader of the Ukrainian nation. He uh, was uh, born in 1800s, a serf, and uh, for the most of his life, he was either, you know, a serf or he was imprisoned. Uh, or uh, imprisoned um, due to his ideas of uh, Ukraine and Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian values. He was born in Ukraine, but when he was bought out of serfdom while being an art student, uh, deciding to be a portrait uh, painter, uh, he ended up being bought out by his colleagues out of serfdom and became a free man. And when he became a free man, that's when he started uh, advancing the ideas of Ukrainian nation, sort of writing poetry that has truly uh, explained uh, the Ukrainian soul. And for these exact reasons, he was uh, exiled into Kazakhstan, where he spent uh, 14 years of his life. And very short, very soon after um, being freed, he ended up um, dying, a 47-year-old, very tired man. Um, because of just the tragedies that he had to live through. He was full of energy. He was full of ideas. He, was, he wanted to paint. Uh, he wanted to, to create art that could help his people, which is something he continued doing while being in exile and something he was doing while being, uh, while being a serf. And for many Ukrainians, his death in those times was a big tragedy. He died in St. Petersburg and he was brought down all the way to Kanyev 
uh, as per his uh, testament, which is a very famous poem of his. He was buried on a hill near uh, Dnipro River, where there's a beautiful view. And right now that town is also a symbol of Ukrainian resilience and sort of this energetic uh, town where a lot of Ukrainians come to mm -hmm. sort of absorb this energy. So after his death, his, his portraits were equivalent to a portrait of an Orthodox icon of, of gods uh, or Christ. So he was, his portraits were hanging in separate, in, in the opposite corners from these icons in Ukrainian, uh, in Ukrainian households at that time. So he was truly a revolutionary figure for many mm -hmm. Ukrainians. And very much today, it reflects the Ukrainian struggle for its independence, its unity, and its culture, most importantly. Well, it seems like uh, this exhibit couldn't be more timely right now. I'm sure his uh, work and spirit uh, means so much to people. Can you describe the the exhibit itself? What explain what uh, this uh, immersive concept is? What do people experience when they go to see this? So the immersive concept is a combination of multimedia technologies. So it's both it's both audio it's both audio and it's also visual. So we've taken. 800 uh, analyzed 800 paintings of Trashevchenko from the National Museum collections in Kiev. And we've selected only 200 in order to um, combine them into the storytelling, um, which we use in order to explain, in order to share the emotions that Shevchenko has felt during his life. There's emotions of love, there's emotion of terror, there's emotions of of, uh, of, of, you know, of resilience, there's emotions of hate, there's emotions of almost every single, you know, every single emotion on the specter of, of, of emotions that Taras Shevchenko has uh, demonstrated uh, throughout his lifetime. So you'll be able to relive his life. You will be able to not only see, but hear what he has heard. Our um, creative director and, and uh, Taisia Poda and uh, our um, composer, Timur Polanski, they have been working together in order to create this tandem of both audio and visuals in order to create this natural flow of, of art pieces and music. Timur, for example, also analyzed the music that Shevchenko was listening to, the plays that he has seen in theaters, as well as friends that he had. One of uh, Shevchenko's friends was a very famous Ukrainian composer, Bulak Artemovsky, who wrote a very famous Ukrainian opera, Zaporozhye Zadunayim. And um, based on this and these assets, we managed to create this uh, exhibit that truly uh, shows uh, the soul of Shevchenko and Ukrainians as well. And it premiered in Odessa, is that right? That is correct. Uh, it premiered in Odessa in 2021 in August uh, for myself and my co-producer Natalia Dlieva, on this project, we thought that it would be very important for us not to start this tour uh, with the capital, for example. We wanted to start it with a smaller Ukrainian town, which is Odessa, not only because it's my hometown, but also because it's, uh, this, it's, 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 the, it's the sea capital of Ukraine. And it's also has this atmosphere uh, that allows people to, that creates an appropriate atmosphere for creativity. So mm -hmm. we decided to do it in Odessa and it ran there for a month. After that, we've, it, it has been presented at the National Pavilion, uh, Ukrainian National Pavilion 
uh, at, at Dubai Expo in 20, uh, 2020 in uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, and it, in October, it opened in Kanyev, Ukraine, at the newly built cultural center called Shevchenko Hub, uh, which was also opened by President Zelensky himself. President Zelensky actually saw the, the exhibit, right? Yes, yeah. he did. Uh, him mm -hmm. and the First Lady uh, have um, seen the entire thing. We had a lovely chat, lovely conversation about Shevchenko. Uh, First Lady Olena Zelensk uh, Zelenska has uh, mentioned that she would love to spend more time with us, but unfortunately protocol didn't allow them to do that. We're speaking, uh, what's today, March 7th, but people will be hearing this, I think, on uh, this will be uh, posted on the 13th, this episode of the podcast. And the actual um, exhibit is being shown uh, in a bunch of places all on the same day on the 15th, right? In six different cities, as I understand it. Is that right? We're looking at uh, Toronto, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Denver, Boston, and Chicago. So mm -hmm. it's going to be in six cities happening on March 15th, all yeah. day long. Um, all of the proceeds. Uh, from ticket sales are going to be going directly to Ukraine to help its humanitarian causes. We're working both with the Red Cross, uh, as well as the National Bank of Ukraine, which are serving two different aspects of humanitarian needs of the Ukrainian people right now. There's also, I believe, an online version that'll be happening that same day. Is that correct? Yes, it will be. A, there's going to be an online tour uh, that we will be doing that will be that will be presented to the audiences is going to be hosted by a very renowned Canadian uh, playwright journalist and a former Toronto Star uh, theater critic Richard Azunian who's working closely with National Museum of Taras Shevchenko in Kiev uh, with uh, Yulia Shalenko and uh, Metro Stus as well as the museum here in Toronto with Ludmila Pogorelova in order to create the informative aspect of it. In these times, doing tours like this is something that, especially of virtual tours online, allow us to sort of unite the world. Um, because right now in Kiev, there's the situation is that all of the artwork, the original artwork of Taras Shevchenko is being packed in crates in order to, for safekeeping, into the same crates in which in 1941, uh, the same artworks were evacuated out of Kiev uh, during uh, Nazi advances into Kiev and its occupation. So it's, it's, it's almost as if a cycle has closed and the history is repeating itself. Um, now the works are being protected from uh, an enemy uh, and an occupational force that is coming from the opposite side, which is from the Russian Federation. So it's, it's, quite, it's a quite significant effort in order to create this online component for anyone in North America to see. Everybody who's uh, observing what's happening in Ukraine right now is the primary thing is we're all sad and angry and all kinds of emotions, mostly related to the people. But the you know the obviously the the arts, the history of Ukraine is all under assault, as well as the people themselves. In times like this, you know, you're thinking back to World War II, and when Churchill has said when the the budget, uh, the, the the budget of of United Kingdom was going to be, you know chopped up and the cultural sort of and the national heritage expenses would have been cut down. Uh, and uh, Churchill has said that, you know, if we don't have a culture, then what are we fighting for? And this is exactly what's happening right now. Ukrainian people have never been this united ever in the history of Ukraine. And the fact that we're uniting around protecting the Ukrainian culture, as well as 
popularizing Ukrainian culture through events like this. It's, it truly makes it all worthwhile. And everyone who's going to either come in person to see the uh, exhibit or is going to view it online will be able to understand why all of this is, is worthwhile for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Exactly why, you know, we also need help in, in, in this battle. You know, it's, we have a rich history that we adore, history that we value, culture that we value. And for many of us, letting go of this culture is not an option. And the, the struggle will continue. Yeah. Hopefully, all of this will come to a conclusion that is going to allow arts and culture prevail. Let's certainly hope so. You know, I think all of us were watching this situation through TV and the internet and newspapers and et cetera, recognize uh, a lot of things you just said. We're seeing uh, incredible strength uh, out, of, out of Ukraine and unity, and uh, it's inspiring to, to all of us. I have one final question for you, and to some extent, you may have already answered it, but if you could tell uh, our listeners one thing about Ukraine, what would it be? It's a very warm and welcoming country um, where anyone who visits it is going to feel like you're returning home. So I really hope that after all of this is over, all Americans, Canadians, anyone across this globe will be able to visit Ukraine and experience exactly this. Just one more thing before we we end this. I just want to mention people and get tickets for the uh, immersive uh, Shevchenko show online, of course. What's what's the website for this? Lighthouseimmersive.com. Lighthouseimmersive.com. And I understand that uh, depending on the city, if they buy tickets for this, they see an, another show as well. I know it's uh, virtual uh, Frida Kahlo, I believe, in Boston. But there and uh, is, is the Van Gogh uh, one in some of the cities as well? Depending on which city you're in, uh, mm-hmm. there's going to be either Frida Kahlo or Immersive Van Gogh. Thank you so much, uh, Valeri. I really appreciate your time, and I wish you all the best uh, with this immersive Shevchenko and uh, everything else you're involved with. With thank you so much. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks again to Valeri Kostyuk for today's interview, and of course also Terry and Jerry Cole. Uh, Next Sunday, March 20th, uh, we'll be hearing part two of the interview with Terry and Jerry Cole. The author Mae Davidson wrote in her book, Whatever It Takes, I quote, My attachment to the state of Maine is that of a barnacle to a ledge, the pull of the moon to the earth. Maine, because of its singular and profound beauty, is a place of worship without walls. I love it so. End quote. Thank you to all the volunteers, members, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Go online to uslhs.org to learn more about everything the Society offers. If you listen through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. Please share Word of Lighthearted on social media. To all our faithful listeners and to our new ones, thanks for listening and... Keep a good light. I'm gonna let it shine.